Hello, Rich Bolas here, and thank you for downloading this episode of the Dad Mindset Show. This week, I talk with landscape architect and creative director Matt York, who, following his son's diagnosis of autism, has been passionate about the broader responsibilities of inclusive design and the opportunities for reconsidering the design of public spaces through the lens of autism spectrum disorder. I hope you enjoy this discussion with Matt York. Matt York, welcome to the show. Thanks, Rich. It's uh, really good to finally have this chat. Yeah, absolutely. We've been talking about this while swimming for some time. So very, very glad to be here and thank you for the opportunity. Oh, no, um, it's an absolute pleasure. And uh, I'm, I'm a little bit gutted I didn't make the swim on Friday, but uh, it was a lot of fun yesterday with a massive swell. <laughs> yeah, I think um, I've not seen it like that on the Friday. That was that was one one for the keeper. It was it was pretty pretty uh, insane out there. So <laughs> more to come, I think, with that too, with this weather. Well, the, the waves were breaking over the boys yesterday, so uh, yeah, I think it yeah. was a, a taste of it. But it was low tide, not high tide, so uh, a, a little bit yeah. less volume, should we say? <laughs> now, um, now, now, Matt, um, can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah, sure, Rich. So I'm a, I'm a practicing landscape architect since graduating at RMIT in 2001. Uh, prior to this, I worked in design studios and during uni, I worked in landscape construction uh, with my uncle's landscape residential business. Um, I'm a, a principal landscape architect at Spire, which is a multidisciplinary design consultancy based in Victoria and the ACT. And I've also founded Budling, which is a, a research and design consultancy that focuses on inclusive design strategies and spaces and research with a focus on designing cities and spaces through the lens of autism spectrum disorder or ASD. Yeah. And that's, um, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut in there, Matt. No, mate, that's, that's fine. Um, we're also focusing on, on sensory processing challenges and, and the resulting impacts of, um, with anxiety and, and increasingly with loneliness. So, yeah. Brilliant. Now, th- this was really inspired by your experience as a father, wasn't it? Because your son, Ollie, was diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder six years ago, wasn't he? That's correct. Yes, at age four. Can, can you talk to us about how you were first made aware of this? What were some of the cues that alerted you to this? Yeah, sure. I think um, it was it was around the age of two that we realised Ollie was was delayed in speech and and basic communications. So our firstborn Will was born three years prior to Ollie, and and so he provided a clear comparison, I suppose, a milestone and of, of development in those formative years. Um, M was M was the first to recognise this, and you know, a mother's intuition has to be heard. Um, and it was here that I realised that gap in communications, but also um, it was also where we, we started to realise the need and, and the importance for early intervention. Yeah. Um, we, we had Ollie in speech pathology from, from age two, and um, you know, that's been fundamental in his development and, and capacity and to thrive, I think, and, and to partake in the world. So it's just something I was thinking of just then that, um, yeah, just highlighting how much of a role early intervention has played um, in setting Ollie up for, for a wonderful life. Yeah. yeah. I mean, how did you react as a father uh, when the diagnosis of ASD was originally confirmed? 
Oh, wow. Um, uh, look, I think um, blame and denial, to be honest, were the first defence mechanisms. Um, you know, I recall going through the health system during Ollie's diagnosis and, and thinking, you know, this just wasn't right. You know, um, so it was defence. It was was it an immunisation. That was really topical at the time. Um, was this real? Was it the commercialisation of health? Um, and just really a phase in development, just a little bit slower. You know, was it karma? I mean, oh God, I, I did everything. I, and why us? So, you know, the great kind of why us? So, um, look, I really, it was a lonely time. And, and I, I recall feeling very lonely with um, this diagnosis. And, and I suppose having that sense of optimism sucked right out of me. You know, how could my beautiful son be autistic? What did that mean? You know, how would Will and Ollie play and grow together? Um, yeah, what did the future look like? And I suppose selfishly, how did this align with my dreams and aspirations? So that was that was quite confronting. Um, I think there was also parts of my family that were and, and not they were unwilling to accept, and that wasn't because they didn't accept. It was just we we didn't have the, the tools or the kit of parts to really clearly assess at this time. Um, so that made ownership a little bit harder um i th i think personally too i really despised that that title of asd and, and you know i felt it lacked hope you know it's a disorder a disorder and therefore a problem yeah you know, and i was i was really worried about that labeling and pigeonholing and how that might work for for ollie particularly through the school system but you know of course employment and and just in future life yeah, we've um, talked. To, sorry, man, we talked about this on the show before with Arnie Phillips, the clinical registrar, and and in in many ways, it, it can actually it, it should be viewed as a superpower, shouldn't it? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, it should be. You know, and you know, at that time, like I was suddenly the guy with the autistic son, and that was a new feeling for me. Yeah, you and know, do you I, think, I remember. Sorry, man, do you think like six years ago, I get the feeling that people didn't talk about it as much. So do you think oh, it was almost absolutely. like not in the, the vernacular, not in the absolutely. everyday language of our friends and associates? Oh, it was completely that rich, you know. And, you know, I remember um, working up the courage, um, which sounds ridiculous, but it was that to tell my friends one night and it not really being heard. Um, the story almost brushed off as because no one really knew how to, to address it, but but we knew that it was being discussed and that our friends really needed to bring closure on this and to own this. So um, yeah, that was that was really that was really an interesting time. But I do and I do have a story actually of a, um, a you know a, a really interesting time that started to to turn the, the um, turn the tide, I suppose. Um, started with swimming, so turn turn the tide on um, on on my views and 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 I suppose my hope. Um, and, and it was, I was battling through swimming lessons with Ollie and battling was the, the right word. Um, and fortunately, and this has become a, um, I think a sequence in this, in this journey so far, one of his, one of the wonderful people that we've, we've had in this journey, um, his swim teacher, Jan, told me a story of a, a young man she knew that was autistic and, and was driving home one night. And um, as he, upon approaching a booze bus, he drove straight through and was, was chased down and pulled up by the police for not stopping. And, and when asked why, why he didn't stop, he simply replied to the police officer that he'd not been drinking and therefore there was no need to stop. You know, and God, I laughed and cried immediately, you know, in the middle of the, the swim centre when she told me this. And it, 
it, it resonated because it presented hope and, and, and a bit of courage and some twisted wit against humanity that, that worked for me that time. But the message was that there was hope in this, that it wasn't this kind of, yeah, this, this, this disorder or this issue or that there was actually humanity in all of this. And um, I don't know, I, I just still, I still reflect back on, on that story and, and that really switched me in going, okay, from um, not hopeless, but, but, but it was a fundamental shift and I, and I knew that I needed to, to, to learn and read and start to find another way to consider and interrogate this, this diagnosis that had been thrust upon us. Um, I stumbled across a wonderful book called Neurotribes um, by Steve Silberman. Um, and and the, tot- the title is essentially around, and it's, it's titled, you know, How to Think Smarter About People Who Think Differently. So I needed to start to convert my approach and ultimately my value as a father, not only to Ollie, but also to Will, who needed guidance as well and space to start to, to process this. So um, I started to celebrate the brilliance and, and talk about this with friends and family to focus on the greatness, not the disorder. And, and it was a fundamental part of my therapy as well. Yeah. Um, Ollie, Ollie has eidetic memory. So he, he can read, see or experience something briefly and recall it years later. Holy um, smoke, I want that. <laughs> I want that. I want that superpower to your point earlier. Um, you know, his knowledge is on areas of interest such as airplane history. And it, it's, it's unbelievable. We had a friend over at lunch recently who's a pilot, and he brought over a laptop with, with all the airports that he flies to with the, the, the flight paths. And, and Ollie was able to recall not only the flight paths of every airport this particular carrier goes to, but also where each carrier taxis and parks went at Melbourne Airport, depending on size and time. And you can imagine the, the pilot, he was completely gobsmacked at this knowledge. And it was all right. <laughs> how old, we, we how old was he at there. the time? Sorry? How old was he at the time? Oh, this was, this would have been, this was over summer, I think it was, or yeah, six months, yeah, recently, yeah, this year. So yeah. um, pre-COVID when you could still have friends over for barbecues. Yeah. <laughs> so um, that, was, that was pretty phenomenal. And, and so, you know, I started to think about that and, and as we should and, and through, through optimism start to go, well, you know, this is going to be amazing. But the, the, the translation there was also for others. And, and for me, I was like, well, I've got 20 years experience in landscape architecture and, and designing open space for people. But I've had that without an idea in the world of what it might be like for the person or the carer with someone with autism um, or a sensory challenge and, and the anxiety and loneliness that that can harbour. Yeah. So, you know, I'd typically focused on inclusion around accessibility or through, you know, something really straightforward, provision of ramps and handrails and those sorts of things. But, but there was so much more. And so the penny had dropped. And, um, yeah, that was exciting. Uh, it's a fascinating subject, isn't it? When you start viewing the world through completely different lenses, like it's so easy to just think, oh, there's two or three lenses. But if you open your, your, your view up or, or your senses up, you know, there's there's myriad lenses that we we haven't even recognised yet. Oh, it's it's absolutely right, and and you know, I think a lot of the learnings and and supporting this this space was much of what I experienced going through um, in those earlier years. You know, like and some classic um, 
things and I suppose some of those signs for us, like Ollie also has always liked to play on his own and he'd organise his cars and planes in a row but then completely smash everything to pieces but as if there was almost a calmness in this chaos. Um, And it was here that I realised that independent play wasn't to be measured as, as a weird thing or a wrong thing but that was actually a part of his calming mechanism. Yeah. And so um, likewise, um, his motor skills were slightly delayed, but he was hypersensitive to sound. Again, this superpower. Yeah. So it was here that I realised a stronger range of, of sensory connections and abilities were present. Um, you know, we tried, I recall taking Ollie to restaurants and they were so loud and overwhelming that, that that didn't work yeah i was um, i was going to ask matt like how have the behaviors and where the world changed since Ollie's uh, diagnosis is, is it you know classic things like the restaurant where you have to yeah. completely rethink things yeah well you you look at um the, the world has changed amazingly quickly and I, I would say even in the last 12 months um you know uh when you look at where they're doing um sensory santa now at christmas time where you can pre-arrive and book a particular time with low sound, low light, low acoustics, um, so that you can still get your photo with Santa. Um, the anchor, uh, Coles and Woolworths have sensory hours now, so you can go and do shopping, um, which I love because it's starting to talk to the role of autism in adulthood as well. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, an example of, um, I, I remember when we were at um, at a playground and um, and Ollie was stimming and, and stimming is a, a self-stimulating behaviour. So it, it's a repetitive behaviour um, that is self-regulating and it's a calming mechanism and, and it varies across children. But for Ollie, it was spinning in circles and, and it still is. Um, so he'll, he'll spin around in circles and, you know, for us it's just, oh, well, old Ollie's going for a spin, you know. We uh, we, we just, it's it's part of the course. But um you know, it was it was here I real, realised two things at, at this playground. Um, there's a very long way to go in educating the world on autism and as, as the parents and carers of, of these other children became quite confused and, and I wouldn't say scared but, but quite unaware of why Ollie would be doing this, why would a, a boy be spinning around like this um, and, and, and what did that mean? It was certainly not a reflection of a play experience or a type of traditional play in this playground. Yeah, I mean, but, but Matt, what would you actually say to your younger self to explain those things? Uh, what What would you have liked to have learnt before you went through yeah. this transition with with um, fathering, you know, Ollie? Oh wow! Um, I, I mean, acceptance and and just a broader view of understanding what what ASD is um, is is certainly one thing. Um, I think understanding also, I suppose it's a in addition to, to this understanding that the the role of the carer, not just Ollie, but the role of the carer here as well in these experiences, particularly in a public setting, um, I think that's 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 really interesting. But you raise a great point about, and it's in the term, it's a spectrum. You know, ASD is this huge, like it's a broad, broad spectrum that's tasked with trying to encapsulate a huge range of abilities under one banner. Now, it's a huge task, and I think that's been part of the, the progression and, and perhaps slower education for society on, on what this is. Um, and I use the word ability because I really don't like the word disorder, and that's my, um, my optimism um, in this because I think it downplays the abilities and the superpowers that we're, 
we're talking about today, which I'm, I'm loving. But, but yeah, I think um, for me, going into that to your question, you know, this vast spectrum is not just about issues or concerns or problems, um, but it's about abilities. abilities. And that's not being denial or dismissive of the facts that there are significant challenges across that spectrum as well. But um, the focus should be on, on the abilities and the challenges, I think. A more equitable approach is really important. And, and that's certainly how I've approached life with Ollie and, but also with friends and colleagues and family and, and more recently through design as well. Yeah. So, was it quite yeah. tough for his brother, Will? I mean, was there obviously a lot of attention placed on Ollie? How, how did Will yeah. go through all this? Yeah, that's been a really significant thing for us. And we've always been and, and we'll always be really mindful of ensuring that, that Will gets gets suitable time and equitable time and 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 the realization that he is the brother with um, you know, the the kid with autism. And so that weight um, was carried through primary school in particular, and we were really mindful of that. Um, we worked really closely with the school on that to ensure that um, that Will got his own space and level of autonomy to develop without um, without that weight potentially. Um, Will being Will and just a beautiful soul, though he he embraced this and and played a, a, uh, a, a well a brother a, a big brother figure and almost a fatherly figure during. The, the course of primary school, Will's now in high school. Um, so that's been phenomenal. But it's a really good point. We, we do need to make time and we do make time through activity and um, one-on-one with Will um, to, to make sure that he does get get that time, um, but also that I get that time as well with, with Will. Um, and, you know, the notion of um, having, having a child with ASD and a, and a neurotypical child, um, I mean, they both bring their challenges and, and bonuses, you know, so there's, um, it, that's fascinating in itself. Um, I think it was a lot harder a couple of years ago, um, I th- and, and I, I really want to um, highlight um, just how much uh, easier um, life has become and it's getting each year. Um, How much more society is accepting of it, do you think? Yeah, absolutely. Or or should I say understands it a bit better? Understanding um, and certainly from Will's perspective but also from just our family's perspective but importantly Ollie's perspective. So um, Ollie's capacity now to self-regulate and realise when anxiety's um, kicking in um, has improved immensely um, compared to when we would be out and he would become completely overwhelmed and let's at a restaurant or in a public space. Um, and the education just wasn't there for others to understand that here is a child with autism and um, he's having a meltdown yeah. um, and that's okay. What, what advice would you have for parents who, who think or, or may not, I mean, what advice would you have for say your best friend or someone that you were telling that your children had ASD what would you say to them? Like, how could they help the most if they were told that their friend's child had an ASD? What What would be your advice there? Yeah, I think um, the first point uh, has to be about early intervention um, and ownership. Um, I, I do have and 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 guide friends um, who are in this space, and and also currently a work colleague who's. Not quite sure, and I recall being there, and I think, you know, we spoke earlier today about that, about um, why me, is it me, is this real? Um, ownership and early intervention are absolutely everything. Um, Ollie's 
been seeing and, and sees a psychologist to help give him the, the skills to manage anxiety um, and, and to focus on social interaction, which is a fundamental part of, of ASD. Um, he yeah. had early intervention in speech. Um, so, yeah, my, my message would be to, to um, read that and, and accept that it's okay and, and get early intervention. Yeah, even just like, even if you, you only partially think that it's the case, it's definitely worth yep. getting tested early, uh, as early as possible, isn't it? Absolutely. And um, and realising too that um, that I think it's fundamental to know that, that Ollie wants to partake in the world and, and, and it's about getting those social skills and interaction with other children that perhaps comes more naturally to neurotypical children. So giving... Um, those skills um, and and as a fundamentally understanding that he actually wants to to be included and around people but in his own way and and with his own coping mechanisms so that's a really important thing to, it, must, it must have been so right? tough back in you know like you think even 20 years ago or something and people not having the language around this not actually understanding it i mean Absolutely. it must have been so excluding for for children and and they just weren't given the tools to 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 grow and and you know work work alongside others and you think about all of those beautiful minds that didn't get to flourish and 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 have a have a space in this world where um where we you know this was celebrated and and i think we're entering an exceptional space now rich with this and and one of my hopes and you know we're seeing now that the world has realised, be that through workplace or education, that, um, you know, we we need people to think differently. We're, we're in a world now where there's a lot to do. There's plenty going on. We actually need a diverse model of thought leadership, of, of different thinking and, and of different minds to come together. Um, that that the last thing that's needed is for that to be repressed um, yeah. or, or not seen as normal because... Um, I would question if normal's working, you know. Um, <laughs> or should we just say so, average? <laughs> yeah, average? Average is not average, awesome. Yeah. I think we can agree. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what are some of the opportunities of designing through the lens of ASD that you see? Yeah, I um, obviously with my, my background in landscape architecture and, and design, I'm, I'm really fascinated by this and, and hence the, the foundation of puzzling. Um the, the, my approach and the opportunity I see is um, for design leadership through the lens of, of ASD has to be to design with and, and not for. And that's fundamental um, to my approach and the vision of Budling because it's fundamental to inclusion. So my approach has been not to look only to design public space primarily for, for children or adults with ASD because Whilst that's great, it's not the complete picture and it's actually not accessing the benefit and abilities for everyone there. Um, so my aspiration is that, that social interaction is achieved and it and occurs through understanding that the breadth of the, the spectrum, um, by education, of course, uh, certainly by, by the design process, and, and I, I'd hope to talk about that today, and, and ultimately about building projects and seeing what worked and actually interrogating and that might be temporary or, or permanent and, and actually using cities as a vehicle to really test this, this type of thinking. Um, you know, there's a real complexity in this design process, but the output is quite subtle. 
And that's when it works really well. And that's where you start to get really good um, social inclusion and, and, and interaction, I think. And I can talk to some project experience there on that yeah. point. Can you, can you tell us about some of the projects you're working on whereby you're applying this learning? Yeah, I will. I think um, I think just one thing I wanted to just touch on too, if I if I could, Rich, um, on this um, is that I've, I'm really mindful of, of with this approach um, how um, how I partner my expertise with that of the ex- expertise of the health specialists and and particularly specialists in in ASD who work directly with behaviour and therapy. So I've got a, a fantastic group of specialists in speech pathology, ABA therapy, um, psychology and, and OT, occupational therapy, that, that really inform and provide direct key behavioural but therapy um, feedback and aspects to which I can then extract and, and, um, and apply through a series of landscape experiences through my medium. So um, that's that's something that I've been really mindful of yeah. in this approach. Um, look, I think also, you know, my approach has been, you know, raising awareness through design is a key stepping stone to informing the community and to commence social interaction. And that's a really fundamental part of this is that how do you tell this story and how do you open the doors to this the breadth of this spectrum um, and and and. At the moment, for me, landscape's been wonderful and, and playground design and parkland design is a really fascinating fundamental space and a great vehicle for this. So I'm really, really enjoying that. Um, I, I think too, and sorry, I will get on to some examples, but um, <laughs> I, I know I'll, I'll keep going all day. No, but, this is um, great. <laughs> keep it coming, Matt. The, I, I think by understanding... Um, ASD and sensory challenges, it, it's actually accessed a greater in, insight for me into other challenges, but particularly anxiety and loneliness. And loneliness is, is our next slash current epidemic um, in this world where we are becoming a lot more detached and reliant on the common man and, and, and one another, be that through technology, be that through pandemic, be it through um, a suite of reasons. Um, you know, they're both of these are major components to our city's health and well-being. So, you know, a proactive approach to these through design is key. And um, so, the the work I've commenced doing um, and that really strong focus on inclusive design is actually providing greater insight into uh, a lot of other um, elements that we need to bring through. Um, and a lot of those, Rich, are, are, have been non-tangible, you know, values when we design a city or a space. And I think that's been a part of why the story is a lot harder to convey or perhaps but has been in the past. But, I mean, if you, if you think about when you do design, we can measure the impacts of a floodplain, for example, and then through design we can mitigate that. We can, we can, we can do a number of things. Um, but it's a clearly tangible response. It's an engineered response. It's black and white. But how do you measure inclusion or the impact of loneliness and anxiety on the city? You know, these we know the impact on health and well-being, and we know the impact as an actual impact in terms of cost on our on our health system. Yet we haven't had the capacity as a design process to think about those because they are they're still not quite tangible, but they have to be. And and I can assure you that that's the type of work that will be happening because and thankfully we're we're actually learning how to measure 
these and, and quantify and actualize these values in cities. Um, and it's going to become fundamental for us. Um, so I think that's a fascinating space and it's actually a project I'm working on at the moment, which I can, I can talk a little bit too. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think that for me too, the, the design process, which I mentioned, um, needs to include more than just me and my views and my particular bias of, of experiencing, um, you know, growing with, with Ollie. And, and so I, I mentioned partnering with specialists, but also partnering with children and adults on the spectrum, partnering with special needs and standard schools, and, and of course, with the government and, and private sector. Um, I also do work and lecture and, and review with the master's program at RMIT and, and more recently at Deakin Uni. So it's really fascinating to see how students are thinking about these topics. And it's actually quite a large component of their design response, which really excites me. Yeah. Know, that's coming through um, whilst they still have space to dream and think and interrogate without commercial reality, you know? Yeah. So that's, <laughs> the sandbox. That, that, that's really good. Um, <laughs> but Rich, to jump into some projects that are from, from that, um, in 2018, I was invited by New South Wales government to peer review um, part of their Everyone Can Play program, which is now a, a mandatory design requirement for all new playgrounds to be inclusive across New South Wales, which is a fundamental change in, in, in policy, really. Um, from that, I then worked with Destination New South Wales and stakeholders to establish how um, inclusive design could form part of the Vivid Design Festival in Sydney. Now, Vivid is one of the larger design festivals um, in Sydney, across Greater Sydney, uh, primarily on the harbour, but it, it extends right through inner Sydney. They see between two to three million people come through over the course of that couple of weeks. And it's this hypersensitive, completely over-the-top amazing festival <laughs> yeah. of light, sound and music and art. It's, it's wonderful. Um, it's a um, probably a, a, you know something that you typically wouldn't see children or adults with an aversion to sensory overload attend yeah. um, and hence why we we were involved to understand well firstly is that fair and b how can we ensure that there is a, a component of vivid that allows for that to happen and what what was that component that you sort of worked on yeah so the 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 project, we, we established an inclusive area, an inclusive play area, and my specific project um, was titled Beneath the Sea, which the idea being that a lot of children, um, be that through wheelchair or through access or through um, ASD or a number of challenges, um, don't actually get to experience that, you know, wonderful, immersive quality of life underneath the sea that you know, you and I experience on a daily basis when we can reach you know, yep. the change of colours. We talk about the different um, visibility we have and, and the granular qualities of the sand and all of the, the, the tide. Um, and I've always, being that Vivid is a festival that is on the harbour, our design brought um, that to the, the beneath the sea to the surface so that children could select and experience different sensory experiences, um, different types of aquatic animals, different types of paths, depending on their um, preference, um, and, and also providing an installation that was low sound and provided a level of refuge from the overwhelming nature of Vivid. So that was that was how we approached that, and, and it was really successful. Um, 
we got to get got to road test it with um, Fisher Road um, Special Needs School, um, which was just you know like it was just overwhelmingly wonderful. Like I, I well up thinking about it, Rich. It was you know it was for as much for me just to see the the hope, but to see it work. Um, we we made some changes to the design through the feedback, and then the carers and parents that would never in their wildest dreams entertained being able to take their children to a vivid festival you know like it was crazy um yeah yeah i was i was a a bit of a wreck after that i think um (laughs) (laughs) i think a lot came to surface and i think what did come to surface was the realization that this matters yeah it wasn't just therapy for me (laughs) yeah i mean the parents must have been just wrapped with um the care and attention that was bestowed on on you know their their children's needs it it was there was and there was a child um that was you know um asd was probably amongst many other um very physical um disabilities um ventilator and and his mother um said that they just wouldn't have been able to. The logistics wouldn't have allowed for this to happen. So part of our work was to make sure that there was a pre-arrival experience package that um, allowed for management of anxiety for children that were overwhelmed. They could choose their time of day, their preferred path. Um, you could book a car park right next to the to the um, area that we had. It was really well done and um, and and quite considerate of the... The whole process of having a, a child um, come to a, a hyper um, event like like Vivid, um, so that was that was really good. Um, I've been I've been working with um, Deakin Cats Community Centre as part of the Geelong Football Club and the Cadinia Park Stadium Trust, following their successful inclusion of the sensory room at GM HBA Stadium. So that body of work um, is around extending the, the sensory room into an outdoor classroom through the concourse and provides a range of sensory and experiential additions to service school groups during the week, but also during game day. So um, parents can come and watch a game of football knowing that there is a refuge available should their child become overwhelmed. Um, that could be part of the system. Parents can take it in terms uh, in terms of you know, um, watching a quarter each or there's a myriad of ways. But the, the benefit is that it allows people to go and partake in a public setting and, and socially interact. So that's been fascinating work and um, and continues. Um, what, what, what does the – so can you describe the sensory room? Yeah, sure. So the, the sensory room is a uh, – quite a warm, low-light, low-sensory room that is um, compartmentalised and allows children and their carers to come in and to self-regulate and regroup and um, and essentially have have a space where whereby um, they can they can um, yeah really self-regulate and and feel comfortable and be it stay there for the duration of the game, the, the football's on in the room um, at, at low volume um, and barracking is managed. <laughs> um, and there's also, there's elements for um, like self-regulating equipment, compression and different um, tools, I suppose, to, What's, to help. What do you mean by compression? 
So compression, it could be like a, a squidgy ball. It could be um, actual like a blanket. It can be a, a wrap. Um, and it's one of the it's one of the um, tools, I suppose, to help children reset and and self regulate had they become overwhelmed. Um, there's time. There's there's basically spaces there and and equipment that um, is is quite calming. And and so that's the the focus of the the actual sensory room itself. Outside of that sensory room, we're, we're looking to expand on that and, and provide more of an educational element to that as well because it will involve the school groups. And, and one of the findings in, in doing this work has been, and, and obviously seeing this through Ollie, is there's this notion around calmness in facts. So because the world of ASD can be so overwhelming and, and hypersensory that anything that is completely abstract or um, you know, non-factual at times can become overwhelming. And so Ollie's knowledge, for example, the, the aeroplanes that I spoke of earlier, or that that knowledge, and that that's concrete, that's fact, and there's calmness in that. I can refer back to that. I remember that. That's what it was. So we've been working with that as as an idea for um for thinking about how how we could um uh how we could abstract the stories of the, the history of the Geelong Football Club and, and use that because it's factual, the, the, the team of the century, um, the, the, all of the different layers, the cultural heritage layers, the, the, the history of the club is factual. How could we abstract that through the concourse as a series of games that children could then partake in and, and it starts to manage and self-regulate anxiety about something that's great unknown or, you know, um, queuing up um, with a bunch of kids trying to kick a footy and suddenly there's two kids that are better and not, you know, we're dispelling all of those traditional models yeah. um, and that's been part of it. And I've got some guiding principles that I can talk through today on how yeah. we're, we're doing that as well. well. Yeah, what are some of those guiding principles, Matt? Um, I think that the really, the as I mentioned earlier, um, designing with ASD and not for ASD as an opportunity to understand the needs of all people um, and and really as a as a social interaction being a right for everyone this is you know where we're using what we've learned through the breadth of ASD as an opportunity to help everyone um, and that's fundamental um, I've mentioned the value of early intervention and and also designing with specialists um, who bring that knowledge of behavior and therapy and I think that's really important that um, that what I do is is um, complementary and and guided and and certainly and supported by those experts. Um, one of the the um, the big things is around sensory awareness, and I've spoken about Ollie's phenomenal hearing. Um, but consideration that there are actually seven senses and not just the standard five that we typically talk of, but vestibular and and proprioceptive senses which are about balance, motor skill and body awareness. They're two fundamental senses that are critical to ASD and everyone, um, but certainly in the development um, of um, during the children with ASD. So bringing that in as, is a really fundamental part of my design process. Yeah. Sorry, Matt, can you just ex- describe what vestibular and appropriate perception are? Yeah, so they're, they're around um, balance So um, and and. Um, muscle memory and body awareness and your motor skills. So um, 
when you think about a good example is on a trampoline to bring it to a, a playground asset. Um, when you bounce, you, 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 your body does what it does. Your knees bend, you prepare, you, you shrink and contract and expand. That's proprioceptive understanding. Vestibular is more around balance. Yeah, correct. Yeah. yeah. And it's that sense. So, so you could actually um, bounce on the trampoline with your eyes shut and still know which way yeah. up. Yeah. Yeah. So um, those two senses are really critical um, in, a, in addition to the other five that we, we, we obviously know of. So, um, so that's, that's something that I, I'm really mindful of as a guiding principle. Um, I, I just spoke about um, non-competitive play and, and that's just absolutely critical to, to managing anxiety. Um, and, and it requires a fundamental shift in, in a traditional design. Um, we're working on constructing a, a playscape with Bar and Water in, in collaboration with the Wadarong at the moment to, to tell the story of the hooded plover and, and how the Wadarong um, would, would use actually Torquay Point um, as part of a weather station. But um, the, the whole intent there um, is, is storytelling through, and, uh, through cultural heritage but inclusive design whereby children actually become the plover and the, the play experience is, a, is quite abstract. Um, you fly through a nest, um, you go through a series of net climbs, you actually slide. So you, you partake in traditional vehicles of play, but the, the way and the approach is not about who won or who got there first or who climbed there the first. And we've dispelled non-competitive play. And so suddenly... People are going to be flying around this playground all being hooded plovers, um, learning about how endangered that species is, learning about the fact that the Wadarong um, used this space and continue to tell story of the importance of this site. And, and suddenly all these things are happening and yet suddenly all these kids are playing together that may never have done that under a traditional model. And, and that's, for me, that's the, the subtlety and the complexity of that is what I'm that's what I'm about that's yeah. that's what matters that's um, amazing man I mean it sounds like I want to ask what are you excited about the future of this space oh I just social interaction that everything is happening and no one actually knew why it's not this really clear articulated piece of it's just happening because it's well considered um social interaction is is the big one and that we learn and actually from these abilities and opportunities through understanding the spectrum that we can actually make our current spaces even better so it's that's the the, the fundamental here as well um yeah it's that's that's been a that's a really um really vital part of, of how we're approaching as a guiding principle um I think calmness, in fact, I spoke to that before and, and what we're doing there to do that at the um, with Deacon Cats Community Centre. Um, the other thing and a big part of the spectrum is many children are nonverbal and so there are nonverbal systems. Um, the PEX system is a, a picture exchange, a communication system. How do you spell that? You is that? Is that P-E-T-S. Yeah. And so um, that's one model of, of communication for children that are nonverbal. But they're also fantastic in, in playground design and, and thinking about wayfinding strategies and public art. So starting to abstract 
the model of that being purely for for children that are non-verbal, well, hey, I, I mean, we can really take that and really make our, our open space strategies amazing and, and engaging. So that's that's something that we're doing quite a bit. Um, yeah, it's, it, I I get really excited about this stuff because I, I love the fact that you know something that's well designed, you almost don't don't notice the design, and it benefits correct. benefits everyone. So the better it's designed, the less it looks like it's, it's yeah. been done for being done for a specific reason. It's like oh, this just works for everyone. This is great. Yeah, that's right. And we really saw that at Vivid. That that really highlighted that because. Um, you know, a, a festival um, where sensory aversion is, is is a big issue in the most overly done festival on Sydney Harbour. You, you know, two worlds colliding, um, and it, it, it was there was a subtlety there that worked. So, yeah, um, that's that's been really important. And I, I think probably the last thing that that we're looking at there is that scale and abstraction help break those traditional modes of play. So. The, the example of the, the hooded plover playscape and the um, storytelling with the Wadarong there is, um, is a great example of, of abstracting those traditional models of play and, 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 and forging social interaction to occur. So when so, you say scale, would you say that the 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 child's perspective is actually yeah. created to be that of as if they're looking through the eyes of a plover? Yeah, correct. So there'll be plover eggs that I think they're two meters, and the, the, <laughs> the, the yeah. and it's it's perhaps Alice in Wonderland kind of yeah. Um, Drink me. Yeah, that's right. So proportion and scale become um, complementary of a child's size. So suddenly the hooded plover's nest, um, I think it's about eight meters. Um, that's and cool. So yeah, and then you stumble across findings about um, how to to play. Um, there's a sign that says fly like Petura, which is the Wadarong name for, for plover, through the nests and find the eggs, flap through the tunnels with the wind in your wings, slide down the sand dunes towards the coastline, glide past the native plants and head back to your nest for a rest, listen to all the birds in Wadarong country. And so these little findings as children navigate through and carers through this playscape will evoke a completely new model of interaction and play. So, yeah, yeah, I love it. That's brilliant, man. Yeah. That, that's um, I, 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 it's so exciting to to see that there's so much being done in this space. I, yeah, thank, I think this is a great place to wind this up. To be honest, um, so I want to say a big thank you, Matt. Is there something else you wanted to add? Well, I think um, I think it's right. Just one thing I I did want to um to to say um, it's it. Yeah, like the world is opening up to this. Um, you know, we're doing we're doing these type of projects um, in all sorts of spaces. In fact, we're doing a project on the seven senses at the um, Melbourne International Flower and Garden Show next year, which will be fascinating. So um, we were invited to do that inclusive inclusive show garden, and so I think the the awareness and, and understanding, but also the importance being placed on, on this type of thinking is really growing, which, um, yeah, really, really excites me. Um, you know, and I think one of the things I was just writing down just, you know, for today was about, you know, what are the hopes for the future? Um, and I think we've, we've obviously spoken a fair bit about that, but, um, I think, 
you know, my hopes are not about answers or blame or cures or perceived issues anymore, but it's about embracing the, this brilliance and, and wonder that autism has brought to me, but also brought to a world that needs that new model of thinking. Um, you know, I, I hope that, in, I mean, men, but families, but particularly men, because we're not always great at opening up and talking about these things, um, can feel enabled to talk about autism when first confronted with this, be it through their own children or a friend or family or colleague, um, and not regard as shameful or blameful, but with a sense of, of optimism. And, and one thing I did want to say is that it does get easier and easier. Like it's, it's phenomenal now. I think back of our style of living five years ago to now, my God, like it's completely, completely different. So that's really great. Um, and, you know, I've been fascinated in this COVID environment and with technology and workplace, we, we will have a more flexible workplace that meets the needs of everyone. Um, that is going to be fantastic for such a range of people that wouldn't have been able to um, shine and, and bring brilliance to the world through a traditional workplace model. I mean, that's exciting yeah absolutely and and arnie touched on the fact that some of his clients had, had really flourished being in this lockdown scenario just because a lot of the baggage of going to school was was removed from the mix and they could just get on and do the work yeah yeah absolutely and you know um it's yeah i, I think that for me i i just finally hope that all of those neurotypical slash normal whatever that is people are going to be able to keep up because the world is really embracing this change and and how wonderful um, is that so yeah. as a parent but also as a human you know it's i just i think it's it's ace <laughs> me too <laughs> well um how can people reach reach you if they want to get in touch to discuss you know your design principles or how, how they can work on projects or or you know instigate projects around uh being more yeah. sensitive to this yeah, sure. I mean, we can um, we can we can make contact through Spire and or Budling, um, and we can also um, through LinkedIn as well. Um, I, I suppose I could I can leave some details there, yeah. Rich, on that. I'll just um, put them on the show notes on the website. Yeah, sure. That would be really great. But really keen to to chat and and keep um, keep this moving because every time I work on a new project or speak with new people, they, they certainly have a particular view um, through experience and it's wonderful to, to see that and, and keep pushing this type of thinking. Yeah. Well, Matt, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and your experiences and uh, opening up to us. It's, it's been really great. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure, Rich. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks ever so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Matt as much as I did. I'll leave a link to Matt's details on the website in case you'd like to get in touch with him. If you're enjoying these conversations, please give the show a rating and even more so, please review it. I really love reading the reviews and it helps others to discover the podcast too. Well, that's all from me for now. I hope you stay safe and sane and until next time, enjoy your caffeinated beverage. <laughs>